This episode is sponsored by Enriched Superfoods. Enriched is my go-to store for the most powerful, most pure superfoods on the plain et. They've got all the good stuff from maca to matcha, from shilajit to powdered greens. But you know what I love the most? I love the mushrooms. Now I know what most of you are thinking, get on with the show, right? But I know what else you're thinking. You're thinking, how can I get better at strangling people? Us jiu-jitsu guys, we're all the same. We want to be better, we want to be badder. Well, being better requires two things, learning more stuff and being able to execute more stuff. And Enriched has got you covered with what I'm calling the White Basement Jiu-Jitsu Super Stack. First is Lion's Mane Mushroom to supercharge memory, focus and clarity and even better, give a neurotrophic boost literally helping you grow new jiu-jitsu brain cells. Now, a jiu-jitsu super brain is all well and good, but if you can't execute on the mat, then it don't mean jack. That's why the second half of the super stack is the legendary Cordyceps CS4 mushroom extract, scientifically proven to offer heroic levels of stamina and energy, as well as improved lung function, actually helping you breathe better while you stop other people from breathing at all. Go to enriched.co, that's E-N-R-I-C-H-D.co, and use the promo code WHITEBASEMENTPOD for a 10% discount across the whole site. Want to get more taps in more rounds and more respect from more people? Then get super stacked. Go to enriched.co and use the promo code WHITEBASEMENTPOD. At the moment, I'm working on one. It's not a geisha, it's a samurai. Actually, it's sort of a geisha. She's a female samurai. That is taking me months. And I'm drawing every single detail on the samurai costume. Do you know how samurai costumes are made? Yeah, with the little scales. The, and yeah, the scales. And the, there's like millions of them. And I'm hand drawing every single one. And each one is slightly different because the angle changes as, as the hand. And, uh, and you know, even a katana... Even the, the handle of a katana, it's all threaded and it's shark skin and there's embroidery and there's, I'm drawing all of that. That's just the line art and that's taken, that's taken me months already. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the White Basement Podcast. Tonight I am joined by my good friend and uh, training partner and professor, Seymour Yang, uh, also known as, maybe better known as, Mirkatsu, the artist. Seymour, welcome. How you doing, mate? All right, Jason. All right. Thank you for having me on. How's yeah. it going? How was your day today? It was all right. Just a um, bit disappointed because it's raining outside. It's really awful. And you know it's the end of summer. It's like in Britain, you, you have a heat wave and then it rains and it's cold. And that's it. It's like the end of summer. It's kind of like, oh, we're all down now. But and it, and it does. I, I actually said this to someone last week. I said... Um, I mean, I guess we're the second day back into school, but I said, you wait, the first day the schools go back, not only is all the traffic back, but it'll be raining. Yep. And you'll be gridlock. Everyone's forgotten how to, to drive yep. where the school totally. is, the new school, two schools, and like clockwork, yep, we got the rain. I did, you know, I didn't, I, I had to do the school run this morning and, uh, <laughs> you know, I forgot what hour to wake up. You know, I have it on uh, the like clockwork normally every day. It's like 7.15, beep, beep, get up, get changed quickly, out the door, 7.30, pick up the other kids, we pick up other kids as well. Yeah. 
and I forgot that routine totally. I was just totally in the uh, zone. But anyway, it's back to the grind. So yeah. was today the first day back? Um, so you went for your... for uh, my daughter and um, for my son, he went back on Monday. So right, yeah, right, okay. Yeah. So yeah, so the rain was pretty much as as yeah, forecast. First day on the on the yeah. school run, and it rains. So cool podcast, man. Um, what's the theme of the podcast, and what's your um, what's your modus operandi with with the whole range of guests and things? Uh, well, the range of guests is to be decided. Yeah. So at the moment, um, I wanted to bring in people who I like and want to talk to, right. and people who I'm interested in their area of expertise. So you you fit both of those criteria. Cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, the first thing that, that actually I wanted to ask you about, I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this who know you will know um, your background anyway. But do you want to run through your martial arts journey, what you started with, when you started, and how you got into jujitsu, Brazilian? Yeah, jiu-jitsu? sure. We can talk about the martial arts first. Um, if you can't see me. And if you've never seen a photo of me, then I'll describe myself. I basically, I am of Chinese origin. I was born in England, but my parents are Chinese. And growing up, I was born in the 70s. No, I was born in the 60s and <laughs> grew up in the 70s. So as you know, the 70s were all about Kung Fu, Bruce Lee and all the Kung Fu films that came after it. So all the, my school friends used to talk about that all the time. And uh, even some of the kids did Kung Fu. I don't know who turned up in my local town to teach Kung Fu. Maybe they were legit. It didn't matter. They were all into it. Forget anything else like boxing. Kung Fu was the thing in the 70s. Am I right? Yeah, It was right. the thing. So me being Chinese, I wanted to do Kung Fu because Kung Fu is the most Chinese thing out there apart from takeaways in England anyway. <laughs> but my parents wouldn't let me. They said, no, no, no. The, the Kung Fu being taught by these people, they're not Chinese. So it's not authentic. <laughs> Which you can understand if you're an immigrant mm-hmm. in the country yeah. and someone's serving you Indian food, but it's, they're not Indian. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you could argue that case. Yeah. Probably these days it's less of a true argument. Anyway, and not only that, they said, I said, well, why don't you take me? Because we would go to Chinatown a lot and we get we see all the leaflets for master so-and-so's class and this and that. And they would say, well, he's Chinese. Why can't he teach me Kung Fu? And my parents go, no, no, no. That's all triad stuff. Don't go there. You'll get involved with the bad boys. So it was either they were not authentic teachers or they were triads. And that's why they were just making excuses so they wouldn't right. do it, right? right. And, um, and you can kind of understand it because I think in certain communities in Hong Kong and probably southern China, Kung Fu or the various martial arts were basically what the bad boys did right. or what, what the street kids did. You know, the hoodlums, yeah, yeah. the middle classes and the upper classes didn't do martial arts. So gotcha. they, that's what they came to this country with that sort of uh, mindset. So I, I, I basically all these years, me being a frustrated Chinese boy, wanting to learn Chinese martial arts, not being allowed, where it was all my, my uh, white friends where they were like doing all that sort of crane stance on me. <laughs> So anyway, as soon as I hit university, the first thing I did, I didn't even go to see my tutor. I signed up to karate class because by then, karate kid was a thing. Yeah. So I signed up to karate kid. So I did karate for three years. After I did karate, I left university, bummed around, uh, got a job. As soon as I started earning money, what's the latest thing I can join? I know I'll do jiu-jitsu, but it wasn't Brazilian jiu-jitsu. This is like the early 1990s. It was Japanese jiu-jitsu. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved all the joint locks and all the the sort of um, close combat action, if mm. you like. It was almost like learning secret knowledge, you know, the way you can twist uh, wrists and arms and strangles and that sort of thing. 
Um, so I did that uh, from about 1994 up to about 1999. And by then, uh, people started to talk about Gracie, uh, Hoist Gracie and uh, UFC. They got all these grainy videotapes and, you know, the score, the usual yeah, yeah. thing. But I had never seen it or just heard about it through hearsay. So a lot of my jiu-jitsu guys are going, oh, I saw this uh, Gracie's in Action uh, video. I almost said DVD and DVDs were in existence. Yeah, then. before. And VHS. so it was like a third-hand DVD recording of a cruel calling. So I got hold of it and I thought, this is amazing. Wow. And, you know, you first time you see it, you really believe Horian's spin on the whole, um, look at this guy. He is an expert in Kung Fu, but he seems hopeless against, uh, uh, you know, Hoyler's um, yeah. back attack. Yeah. And, and in a way, he's not lying that he is telling the truth, but he's probably overselling the kind of people that used to walk into their Gracie garages and how expert they are. And also uh, maybe not quite telling the whole thing, right? It was great were, marketing as well. It was real marketing. marketing. There were a lot genius. of preconditions that they gave these guys that you didn't see on tape. Anyway, right, that's a right. long story. Once you learn the history of jiu-jitsu and the shenanigans that led up to where we are today, you realise there's a lot of BS in the early uh -huh. days. Uh -huh. uh, but that being said, uh, it did work. It was very compelling. And I watched that, put it in the back of my head. I thought, well, when there's a, a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu school opening up near me, I'll probably check it out. But that didn't happen until about 2003. Uh, so I saw the word Gracie, popped in, said, hello, I'm a Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Can I join your class? <laughs> and that was the worst thing you could ever say. You know, when you turn up, even now when we go to classes and somebody rocks up with a traditional martial, saying they're yeah. a traditional black belt and traditional martial arts, you just think, right, I'm <laughs> going to show them the true martial arts. That's, that's yeah. the thing. So I yeah. was, that was my first lesson. I turned up to Carlson Gracie, not knowing anything, the difference between one Gracie or the other. I just saw Gracie. I thought, let's just turn it out. So they were up in Royal Oak. And that was in 2003, I had my first lesson. And a good friend of mine now, Alan Pozzo, he's a, he's a black belt um, under Z, Z, ZR, ZR um, team. team. Um, but he was with Carlson back then. So he was the first person that I trained with and rolled with. And he, he's smaller than me and he absolutely <laughs> murdered me. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, looking back now, I think that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because although I was a bit upset at the time, uh, because, you know, your ego is totally crushed. You, you're a black belt in, you know, traditional jiu-jitsu. You think you know a thing or two. Done a bit of ground fighting. At least I can hold my own, surely. And even, and also um, Carson Gracie back then, there was, was a lot of Brazilians there. They, they don't wear belts. They just turn up in their shorts and the t-shirt. Yeah. I don't know him from, yeah, yeah. Know him from you know, Larry and just turned up. So it was Nogi and absolutely murdered me. And... <laughs> You know, if Alan's listened to this, you weren't using legal techniques either, mate. <laughs> there was a lot of, shall we say, uh, luta livre, right, dirty, right. dirty jiu-jitsu going on, just right, to sort right. of prove a point. Yeah. But it was a good point because it really worked on me. And ever since then, after a bit of thinking, I thought, I really got to do this shit because this is mm. absolute for me. So that was in 2003 and, and I haven't stopped since then, really. I progressed from training for a couple of years at Carlson Gracie, not really regularly. I was still doing traditional jiu-jitsu back then. My heart wasn't in traditional jiu-jitsu anymore. I felt that it wasn't a system that once you've done the first sort of six or seven belts, you've learned all the mm -hmm. very, very mm -hmm. applicable self-defense stuff that you can do. Mm -hmm. Like someone doing a bear hug or a strangle or yeah. sort of pinning you against the wall. It's yeah. very useful stuff, very applicable. It's what we teach the kids. You know, yeah. you can't yeah. deny that it is. It has, a, it has a use. But after that, it gets very, hey, here's a sai and here's a kata for the yes. sai. And yeah. you're thinking, yeah. yeah, but, you know, I want to learn something that I can... 
yes. beat Alan Pozo up in the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> in the yeah. Carson Gracie. Yeah, I know, you know what you mean. So I thought that at some point I have to really dedicate uh, to property to jiu-jitsu. So probably I didn't take it that seriously until about 2005-ish, a couple of years later, um, which coincided with Eddie Cohn opening up a gym in Wanstead. Yeah. So I joined his and I was with Eddie for probably a good three, four years. Um, and then I moved house to Borenwood, which is near where this studio is. So where were you living when you were training at Eddie's then? I was in Hackney. Oh, right. Because yeah, I, 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 I went to Eddie's oh, for yeah, that's right. You six also... months, but I must have been after you had already come. And, where was and he based when you were there? He was in Dalston when I was there. Oh, right. Right, yeah. Before Not... he moved, then he moved to Tottenham. Yes, more, more so recently. you weren't there when he moved to uh, Tottenham. No, Northern, uh, Seven Sisters, I think he was there for a bit. Yeah, no, uh, only you when he was at Dalston. I mean, my, 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 I've, I I've, was there in Wanstead, then he moved to Bethnal Green, and then he moved to near, nearish Mile End. Yeah, no, no, that was all before I was there. Right, okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my... my, my uh, my story is different to yours, but but a little bit similar in so far as I already was doing martial arts. I've told this story a few times, but I, I saw UFC and became obsessed immediately with right. Royce Gracie and this is the best. And uh, a friend of mine, um, I, I don't even know how he how he even ended up training at Eddie's, but he he was doing some film stuff and had met this person, met that person, and just out of the blue rang me up and said. I've been training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at this club and Hoist Gracie's coming to teach a seminar tonight. Do you want to come? So that was my first ever BJJ lesson. So your first ever experience was Hoist uh, Gracie. Hoist Gracie. Yeah. Yeah, not a bad one, really. <laughs> and he was time. the man that you saw in the videotape. Yeah, I was... I was. So you were starstruck. Yeah, he, yeah. He, was, he was literally... Did he give you a stripe on that? <laughs> no. <laughs> he gave, me a, he gave me a look like... <laughs> I know we say jiu-jitsu is for everyone, but it's not for absolutely everyone. For, for those who don't know, who's Gracie, legend that he is, I'm not taking anything, he is known for turning up at seminars and randomly giving stripes to people, not at the behest of the instructor, just because he felt like it, like candy. And I think, he, I think he may have done now, now you've said it. That's what he did to it, me, gave me two stripes. Me. Oh, that, that can't be bad, getting two stripes from Royce yeah, Gracie. Yeah, I just thought I was a bit confused because I, oh, I thought my instructor would be bad. Anyway, that was, you know, you can't take that away from me. He's, he's, he's a lovely guy and his techniques are really, really legit good, mm. old school, but they work. I still use a little bits of what he taught even now, filtered down a bit through my years of my own, doing my own stuff. But, you know, he's, 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 he's legit yeah. as, as a jiu-jitsu exponent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, in, in helping to bring it to the world. Because those UFC, that really that, was yeah. what launched it. Yeah. You know, before that, it, it was a very niche thing. Yeah. And I think with, as with a lot of things, you know, you can, you can have a band, you can have a, you know, be an artist or, or of some kind and be very good, but struggle to get exposure. But that UFC was what really launched it. I mean, after that, the, the day after, it was a thing yeah. in the, in yeah. the yeah. you know, con collective consciousness, jiu-jitsu Few things came to the world. Few things, it's certainly in the history of martial arts, few things hit the world as big as that. I think Bruce Lee would be number one mm. and Hoist Gracie UFC would be number two. Yeah. I think Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, if UFC never happened, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu would still be worldwide, but it would not have the impact that. Um, how can I put it? It might be just sort of seen in the same way as judo is or wrestling. Mm -hmm. Very, very legit sports, mm -hmm. very, very good, combative, but not the mind-blowing experience that 
that the whole Gracie challenge, yeah. or, you know, how many rounds did Voice fight in one, you know, against an, a wrestler or an Aikido expert? Well, I don't know, yeah, you know, Kung yeah, Fu expert, yeah. kickboxer. Um, that whole, um, uh, te- like almost like the film, you know, where the final fight, the, the Van yeah, Damme type yeah. of thing, but in real life. But um, even, even the way they came, you know, they all came in in the line with yeah, him in the middle, yeah, the brothers, and, yeah. you know, they, they, they definitely marketed it very well. But it was, I, I remember when I saw it and it just, you know, it instantly reframed my um, my idea of martial arts. Which considering you, you trained in a very traditional system of Kung Fu, it's quite... Shows you how powerful that moment was. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, it, it was. A, it was a seminal moment. So, so that was. Did you say two thousand and three? You started training. So two thousand three, I turned up at Carlson Gracie, had my first lesson, got beaten up, and fell in love with it. Uh, even though I was, it's kind of weird. You're sort of half of you is crushed, the other half is elated. It's, as an adult, it's mm. a very hard experience. You know, as a child, you're used, kind of used to that. So it's kind of like having that primeval um, emotional experience. And then uh, I haven't stopped since I, I yeah, so Carlson Gracie for a few, a few years on and off, really. But mainly I was still uh, dedicated to traditional jiu-jitsu. By the way, it was through traditional jiu-jitsu, and I'm sure we'll talk more about Nick later on, but uh, through traditional jiu-jitsu, that's when I first met Nick Brooks. Right. And he was teaching in Mill Hill, uh, Mill Hill Jiu-Jitsu Club. And he had his own journey, um, joining up, uh, first of all, with his friend um, Joao in um, Portugal. And then... Uh, joining up with Roger Gracie uh, when Roger opened up. So while he was uh, learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu, he was also teaching traditional jiu-jitsu. Right. And while at the same time I was teaching traditional jiu-jitsu, but sort of had my eye on Brazilian jiu-jitsu, he was always a few years ahead of me. Mm. And then when uh, he taught a seminar at our place, no, I think I went to his place, uh, his his co-instructor taught traditional stuff and Nick taught what he knew of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at the time, which was just guard, close guard, scissor sweep, get on top, mount, and very, very simple stuff, most basic stuff. Yeah. And I knew then, even watching, I thought, this is really cool. You know, what is this thing, Nick? Because, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a few lessons from this person called Roger Gracie. Oh, I've heard of the Gracies. And it kind of, I'm, I'm actually thinking of having a separate training group. You can join us. And so he was running Mill Hill Jiu-Jitsu Club with uh, Barry. But on Saturdays, he would meet up in the sports centre and just put some mats down and just do what he called grappling. Right. He did want it to contrast with um, his yeah, traditional yeah. stuff. I think, and that's where Chris Hearn and Daniel Strauss first sort of walked in because he sort of, there was no online thing back then. It was yeah. just word of mouth. They yeah. heard about this grappling fight club thing and they joined Nick along with a few others. And that's how his Brazilian jiu-jitsu side of it grew. And by the time he established proper Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu club. That's when I joined. Right. So um, how long did that take before he set it up formally? I'm not sure. I think uh, you'll have to ask others for the timeline. But certainly by 1999, when I, when, I was, when I took the seminar with Nick, he was already starting to do Jiu-Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu techniques right, in, right. as part of his repertoire. Right. And without knowing the full deal, so him and Barry, the people who are running the traditional Jiu-Jitsu side, um, decided to part ways artistic differences Barry would you know didn't really 
want to go through the more grappling ends of things. He still wanted to keep it traditional. So right. he went off and formed his own club. And Nick took over the venue, which is the Sea Scouts Hut. Were you there at the no, Sea Scouts? Was, oh, I was only at the, you know, right, the Mill okay. Hill so HQ. the Sea Scouts Hut in Mill Hill was the venue for the traditional jiu-jitsu club. Uh, and then Nick took over that. And then that's when he turned it solely into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and uh, no-gi grappling. Uh, club but even then it was only because we had to share it with the sea scouts mm -hmm. sea scouts they're like the, the scouts and the cubs but for the navy I don't know. it's just it's I've the same but in seen, blue right i've never actually seen any of the kids turn up there because right. we always turn up like seven in, at night when they've long gone yeah you just see like remnants of ropes and things that they they, they learn how to do knots and <laughs> yeah the scout scout huts is uh, is probably a very british thing Trust me, I have many years in brown, very red, many years of running my own place at that scout hut, which you've been to actually. Yeah, yours that was a scout hut, right? It's a girl guide hut. Girl guide hut. Yeah, but <laughs> they, they normally have like quite a good spot, a good sized unit. And that was, yeah, what it is is with the just going off topic is that, well, the whole scouts, guides, and that's a legacy from the 50s, right? That's when it was set up post war, trying yeah, to get the news. Yeah, yeah. And they had money, they had a very generous money to buy land and huts and houses. Yeah. But they've never had the money to look after them right. ever since then because they're not making money. Charging, you know, yeah. cubs two quid to yeah, turn yeah, up, right? Yeah. So they're just falling into disrepair. So now they've had to sell them all off. Uh, which did, is did you do cubs when you were little? No, no. The, my parents wouldn't let me. Right. They're I not going to let me do I Chinese. I didn't like it, but I They're not going to let me it. do Chinese martial art. They're not going <laughs> to let me do white person's weird <laughs> semi-combat. Uh, it, it was taught by white people. A white people's <laughs> art taught by white people. This is going to be really offensive to me. Oh no! <laughs> Cubs, I think I think everybody in this country's got a got a, like a fondness, whether you went or not. It's I'm like sure. an inst it's yeah. a British institution. As long as the instructor wasn't a pedo, I'm sure you were fine. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I I can't remember that ever happening when I was there. But then you you would probably blank it out. So I, <laughs> let's face it, you yeah. know there, there were no DBS checks back then. <laughs> I, the Roman Catholic Church or the Cubs, you know. I tell you one thing that I can still remember from Cubs that I learned, not not from the Cub leader, whoever it was, but I don't know whether you've ever done this. We, we had to do this. You know, you, you would do various things like, like you say, tie these knots or whatever. And one of them was, was that you had to try and count in your head exactly one minute and then sit down exactly at a minute. And um, there was this one kid there who would just like nail it perfectly everyone else would be you know start sitting down and then he sits down and other people are sitting down and then they'd tell you like who was closest he used to be on 60 seconds every time and i remember at the end he told oh, you me, mean you the, there's you, no clock you're watching yeah it's no just no you, you just count in your head like 60 seconds so what what he did and i've always remembered this he said i take my pulse i take my pulse before so I know it's like 68 beats in a minute or whatever. And then I just count my pulse. And when I get to 68, I sit down. That was a kid who, who yeah. went out. Blimey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I can't tie a knot. <laughs> I can't even do my shoelaces up properly. <laughs> I've lost all my swimming badges, but I can remember that. That's well, the thing um, that stays with me. Uh, just to finish the story. Yeah. The, um, so I met Nick originally through just seminar, joint seminars between our club and his club. And um, just chatting to him about jiu-jitsu. So when I, when I moved house to Boreham Woods, I knew it would not be far from Mill Hill. Yeah. Um, some, could, some might suggest that I chose my house because it was close to Mill Hill. But, 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 you know, as long as my wife doesn't listen to this podcast, what she doesn't know... <laughs> 
because you know she she just said we just agreed to move house we wanted to get out of hackney and and she goes where, do you, where should we move to because i don't know i think mill hill's quite a nice area now mill hill is a nice area you cannot afford that unless you're very very loaded so we moved just slightly north of mill hill which is Bournemouth elstree area which is perfect for us mm. and knowing full well that there would be a nice handy jiu-jitsu club run by my good friend nick uh just down the road so that's the story of me joining mill hill and i was there from oh god 2000 and um where did we move 2012 something like that no it can't be 2000 anyway long time and long when, time. when oh, i know yeah 2007 we moved in, yeah, because that's when my son was born. And um, when did you set up your own club? So I was at Mill Hill at, um, from 2007, and in 2015 I got my black belt from Nick and Mauricio. So um, so my total time spent doing jiu-jitsu was about 12, 13 years. Uh, and then soon after that I just thought, you know, there's a, there's a, if I don't open up a Brazilian jiu-jitsu club in, in Bourne Wood, somebody Someone else, else is going to. And yeah. I kind of, it's my town and I want yeah. to put my stamp down there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as it happened, no one has shown any interest. <laughs> so I, I just looked around and found the leisure centre had some slots and um, just put some Facebook ads out and some people turned up. But that so, may be no one else there because you're there. I mean, there, there, there does seem to be a little bit of a, a gentleman's agreement with jiu-jitsu clubs. Don't open right on someone's doorstep, you know, give them a few think? miles. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I think some, no. look at Barnet, you've got loads in your area. Yeah, true. All competing with each other. True. There's there's RGA Barnet. There's Resistance. I'm sure there's another one. Yeah, I'm I think sure RGA they but they moved from Enfield, right? Yeah. Because there's one right near. I don't really know my, who they are. They just they just ba- they just I just see their Facebook ads. Yeah, I think I think they moved. There's out Resistance. Of and there's well, we were up Potter's Bar, but now we're in back in Boronwoods as of two weeks' time. Oh, it's, you're going back again. I mean, Watford as well is the nightmare. I mean, they're not a nightmare, but you're spoiled for choice. There must be at least four jiu-jitsu clubs there. Really? If you include the Gracie Garage, the Gracie Watfords, then you've got Icon, then you've got Jay Heridge is out there, he's yeah. teaching, and then yeah. there's definitely another one. Um, another one. So there, there, and it's not that big a, you know, it's not that big a town. Mm, mm. But anyway, yeah, what was maybe. I saying? Yeah, so I ran, the, I, I just decided, I thought, because of my experience teaching Japanese jiu-jitsu, I thought, it can't be that hard. It's got to be, you know... Bring, you know, I enjoy teaching Japanese jiu-jitsu. I want to do, teach Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I love it. I, I just love. I just. I feel some people are, are. They feel that teaching is for them, and they gravitate towards it. And I'm one of them. Yeah, it comes across in your teaching that well, you, I hope so. that you enjoy it. Yeah, I enjoy it, and I do. The thing with teaching, what I found is, um, <clears throat> you can teach in a couple of ways. You can teach like a parrot, because it's exactly as you've been taught. Yeah. Or you can take the information because it's all I see it, which is my way. It's just data, yeah. And it's your way of interpreting the data and regurgitating it out in your own way that makes it special to you as mm. an instructor. Mm. Everyone does that to a little bit, but I think the problem with I found with traditional jujitsu is that we had a lot of time arguing. Goes no, no, no. You put your left hand there and your little finger there and your right cheek there because that's the way it's always been done. Yeah. But why? Because that's the way it's always been yeah. done. But it makes no sense. Whereas in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if you put your left little finger there and your right cheek there and you get smashed, you think, you know what, this shit doesn't work for me. What yeah. if I put my right hand there and yeah. my left hand there? Oh, that works. And you can interpret that data, reform it and give it out to your students and say, look, this is the traditional way. This is the way so-and-so teaches. This is how I do it. Let's see you try all three. 
okay, it looks like the middle one works for you. Mm. Foot locks is a perfect one. The straight ankle lock, the most basic of all foot locks, right? The, the traditional way of doing it, if you go back ages like traditional martial arts, is the figure four grip around the mm -hmm. uh, ankle and you just heave as hard as you can. You know, wrestling style. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you're strong and the person doesn't know how to escape, you're going to get a tap. But in jiu-jitsu, most people don't tap because it's the most boring and basic of grips. There's so much space around your arm. So latterly, people are doing like the guillotine grip, which is, I'm sure you felt when I've done yeah, it to yeah, you, and yeah. you've done it to me. You know, you get that much tighter. And that's that, that version is through many, many hundreds of instructors going, this version didn't work. Let's do this version. Yeah. But now, guess what? I'm going back to this version because now I know how to do this version properly. Uh-huh because I've set up other things correctly. So it's using all the bits of information, reinterpreting mm. in your own way. And then I've got a nice little subset of skills that I can use and explain to my students because the underlying concept is still the same. The mm. fundamentals are still the same, but I can show the nuances to my students. So I think a good instructor, or at least I'm trying to be a good instructor, is, is reinterpreting data, mm. uh, finding ways to communicate and making sure that your student will eventually do it and make it their own yeah yeah but like mean, us training together is a perfect example right there's so many examples where i've done a technique on you or gosha takes a few weeks and then gosha will do it back to me or you'll do it back to me that you may never have done it look for example in close guard someone stacks you mm. there's a lot of pressure on it when you're thinking what the hell is going on and it's horrible and you have to open your guard uh, I don't know if you knew that before. I don't know if Gosha knew that before. When I started doing to you guys, you were like going, blimey, what the hell is this? It took you a few weeks. You started doing it on me. Now we're doing it on each other. Yeah. And it's like, it's like evolution of a, yeah. oops, evolution of a, a technique. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's amazing. I think that's, that's, that shows you how alive it is. Whereas yeah, well, if you and I only learnt Yes. How to do part, open the closed guard. And we learned three different methods, yeah. but we did it by the book exactly as we were taught by whoever, Roger or Nick or whatever, would maybe get it right. We, we wouldn't grow in that way. I, I think that's why, certainly for me, and you know, you can see how, how fast it grows and how, how passionate people get about doing jujitsu, is because it is, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a few things. I think, I think one, it's a, it's a young martial art. You know, most martial arts are very old. So they are very traditional and taught in a certain way. And you, like you say, they're quite rigid as far as this is how we teach this and this is how we do this technique and this is how it should be done. Whereas because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is really, it's sort of, for in terms of a western thing it's 20 years old i mean before that it wasn't really here so it, it is it is like a, a much younger more flexible pliant thing which is why people have have sort of taken it off in different directions and, and made it their own but i think also and this is this is the thing that i that i enjoy about it so much and i think most people who who train jiu-jitsu a lot enjoy it, is there's so much sparring there's so much sort of active rolling that like you say I get taught something I do it it doesn't work I see other people doing it and it works and I see other people kind of they yeah it looks like they're doing it and so then you've got to start kind of shaping it a bit and changing it a bit and my arms are a bit longer or my feet are a bit bigger or whatever so I have to do this instead of that so it, I think it does lend itself as an art to something which is much more moldable than than a lot of traditional martial arts which is why i think i mean your your sort of journey into it a bit like mine doing traditional martial arts because 
of the the rigidity of them I think a lot of people do get to a point where you feel like well I'm, I'm not really getting much better I don't really want to learn how to do a three-sectional staff you know I'm not it's not really for me so but what what else really is there to do not not much whereas you know jiu-jitsu I mean certainly I've, I've really I've only been training properly for about five years but 50 years later that you haven't even covered 20 percent I mean there's it just goes on and on it's like a fractal you know every time you go in deeper you just a whole new universe of things opens up and then you go down another alleyway and a, another whole thing it opens is very up. um uh, almost like an, an endless journey yeah I th I th it's not just techniques as well sometimes you can visit stuff that you probably haven't done for years um and find new things about it mm. Uh, new interpretations, new new setups. Um, I mean, the difference between, say, a black belt, sparring with a black belt and sparring with a very good blue belt is that they'll do the same techniques, but the black belt will know when to drop it in yeah. and ti timing-wise, whereas the blue belt will still be trying to force that technique yeah. that they've learned because yeah. it's still not quite a part of their inner self yeah. uh, and try and push through. And then I guess when you look at purple and brown belts, they're, they're on the way to yeah. um, expressing that technique in a more um, nuanced fashion. Mm, mm, mm. So, so it's probably fair to say that a good blue belt who's been training, let's say, five years, probably knows as much in terms of technical, yeah. Um, yeah. How, you know, the A to Bs, yeah. as, say, a good brown belt or even a black belt. Mm. But the black belt will have that context and where to place it and sometimes you can't even explain it yeah um, you you just you just drop it into sparring because uh, oh i noticed you know you did that and then i said like, oh, why I said, well, to be honest i don't know i just yeah. felt like it was a, I, I say to my students to be honest nine times out of ten when i'm running i make it up as i go along yeah yeah, yeah you're in a bit of a flow state you're in a flow and because your your body ha is now attuned to the concepts and the patterns you just sort of do it and there's no actual technique it's just oh, i just um, shift my hips that way because mm. it felt like the right thing to do mm. which is really weird isn't it but I mean I think I think tell, tell me if I'm wrong but I think you may be more than uh, m most other people that I train with you you I think you go back often and look at your roles and and analyze why did this happen or why did my hips move here or why did I because you know certainly with me I I'm 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 lazy in doing that. There's there's often times when I think, oh, that was really cool. I must watch that, or I must figure out what how that happened. But I don't do it, and I think I think you do. I think I've I only think started doing that since we started training together during during lockdown. Um, just for a bit of history, for people who don't know that Jason uh, Gosha was originally Jason and I trained at met at Mill Hill, so we trained together. We probably trained with each other the most compared to a lot of other the students there because we're a sort of similar size mm. and age and, um, you know, uh, skill level. And we would always meet every Friday, almost guaranteed, yeah. because that was open mat. Yeah, no, yeah. competition. Yeah, running. yeah, class. Uh, let's face it, after a certain belt rank, you don't want to turn up to technical class and just drill the same old techniques. Yeah. You just want to roll. Yeah. So that was our favourite night. And then... Um, Jason's girlfriend at the time, now wife, Gosha, uh, expressed an interest in doing jiu-jitsu. And like a lot of better halves, they don't want to do it with their partner. <laughs> they want to do it at another place. So I guess she, you recommended or she chose my club in Boreham Wood at the time. 
And so that's our connection. And then lockdown happened. So we had to close all the clubs and, and Jason and Gosha um, reconditioned their uh, basement into a dojo. So I joined in on that. Um, and that was 2020, was it? Yeah. Man, 20, time 20, flies, isn't yeah. it? So couple, we've been doing that and it's obviously lockdowns over and COVID's well, maybe not over, but it's not a thing anymore. Um, but we, we just enjoy it so much that we've been training regularly yeah, uh, once lovely. a week since then. And it's only since doing that, I thought let's record them because uh, number one, it's, it's nice. It's fun to look back at videos of you rolling yeah. for the funny thing. I was looking for the funny instance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like today I posted me accidentally hitting Gosher in the head and yeah. uh, I made a joke of it going, <laughs> and that's me being nasty. Um, but actually what I realized was, shit, I'm really shit at rolling. I'm really making loads of mistakes. But at the time when you roll, you just it's easy to dismiss it and go, oh, I'll improve it next time. Mm. I'll watch a Danaher mm. video. Mm. But the best video to watch is yourself. Yeah. Uh, I, I imagine that when you did filmmaking, you work with some uh, up-and-coming actors. And sometimes the best, I've heard that the best way to learn your skill as an actor is to watch yourself on yeah. screen, yeah. some screen back. Some people don't like doing that, but... Some people like to analyze how they appear because mm. that's all part of the art, right? So I think if you're learning a craft like jiu-jitsu, and it is a craft, it's a very practical, physical skill, it's important to see how you do that skill. Mm. And you can almost coach yourself. Yeah, you, can almost, you take a step back. It's not really me on video. It's a person, you know, cocking up the knee slice. Why? Why did I get cock up the knee slice pass? You know, yeah. it's because I didn't move my hips. I didn't angle this and that. And that turned into a whole... Uh, video blog thing where I'm well, well let's try and do a theme let's try and see how good I'm half guard and do half guard for a few weeks or K guard or, or passing this and that uh, and and I've learned probably more in the last two years and to improve myself yeah. than I have in the previous 10 years not to put anything down on my instructors and my training partners but that has been the best rapid growth in mm. my personal development yeah I mean um, it is that feedback you know that where you can actually go back and look at what you think you did against what you actually did against what you wanted to do. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, um, I think it's a, it's an under, it's an underutilized tool. I, I, I'm sure with the, with the, the more professional gyms, the Danahers and these guys, I'm sure they do that kind of stuff all the well, time. If you think, uh, I suppose in the blue, in, in Henzo's, Danaher is the video because he, yeah. he's so analytical. He can probably see at an instant how you're fucking up and tell you. Yeah. We didn't really have that benefit when, because, you know, Nick's either rolling himself yeah. or he's, you know, he can't keep an eye on everyone. So yeah, you exactly. have to monitor yourself, but you can't do that in real time. You have yeah. to almost look back. Sometimes I wish we had videos of us rolling during those disco nights, yeah. Friday night, because I put some badass moves together, but I also fucked up a lot of moves. Yeah. And I would like to have known why. Yeah. Uh, yeah but yeah, now yeah. I can. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's really useful. Uh, um, I st still, it's, it's not 100% though. I still can't figure out how to transition. When I take Gosh's back, I can't, I just can't do anything with it. She's so good at defending the back and then wriggling out of it. And I've tried everything that I think I, I need to try. Locking down the hips, um, you know, crushing the head, trapping the arm, getting a cameo grip. I've done everything. Do I do a body triangle? You know, I've done it all. Yeah. I've gone through the list and she's she still gets out of it. To, she's hard to tap. It she's is, really hard to tap. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's testament to her, to be honest. Yeah. But also by us doing that week in, week out to her, yeah. she's just chilling under there. She knows that, you know, her defences are tough. Yeah. Um, and subsequently, when she goes to places like the Resistance, um, and she doesn't know who she's going to roll with, you know, you don't know what they're like, you don't, you yeah. don't necessarily yeah, yeah. trust them, but you do have the backup that, well, yeah. you know, if I can defend Seymour's back control and I've got, you know, hubbies 
trying to attack me and I can defend yeah. that, then I'm sure. Yeah, this I guy... mean, I think having a having a solid defensive game, which again, I mean, your your whole turtle and you know baby bridge and all of these positions, having having a, a solid defensive game, I think, especially as a smaller person, as a lighter person, as an older person, if you've got injuries, that's a that's a really um, important fundamental um, part to to be good at. Because it allows you to to stay on the mat, you know, rather than not being able to train with certain people or not being able to roll with certain people, to at least say, okay, I can I can kind of just hang out in these places, and watch the timer and try and get to the, yeah, it's the more five than, minute. Yeah, it's not more than just hanging out. Um, I think as as the body gets older, we get slower, less flexible, less agile. That's a given, right? Yeah. And then you could say, oh yeah, but you've got more wisdom. Um, but I've got the mind of a 20 year old. Mm. I want to fight like a 20 year old, mm. but I can't. Right? Yeah. But what's doing defensive jujitsu? Um, and, uh, you know, huge shout out to Preet Mikkelsen, who I learned a lot of this defensive stuff from. Uh, it fit me like a glove and I started using it with you guys. And then out in my academy and the other places that I visit, it's been brilliant. It's given me uh, safe spaces to not mm. hang out, but I know that they are so safe and robust that I can either be there as long as I want or if I want to bust out I can bust out mm. so actually what happens is rather than clam up in turtle or whatever position and just pray for dear life that the person doesn't hurt you you're choosing to go there mm. and you're choosing when to not be there yeah so get, and if you, if you know that jiu-jitsu is all about control control of yourself control of the other person and so the defensive side which is quite neglected you know who's an expert in turtle you know you can probably think of three people right mm, you know mm. eduardo and, and you know and that's it but if you can say turtle or even not turtle half turtle like you know running man and all those positions that i use if you can do that to a good level against another good grappler mm. it's an amazing skill it's yeah. about it's as good as being an, the ultimate in an, in an attacker as well yeah 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 i agree very much. But the analogy now I like I use a lot of cycling analogy because I've picked up cycling since lockdown a lot and I'm really enthusiastic about cycling. I'm amazed that there are guys on forums who are in their seventies and then pumping out amazing times doing one hundred mile things. They're never gonna be like Tour de France style speeds, but they can still do a hundred miles in about five, six hours, which is insane, mm. insanely fast. Mm. Um just for the record, like a really fit amateur cyclists can do 100 miles in just under four hours right you know that's a constant 25 miles an hour uh even with hills right and there are 70 year olds who never were professionals they're just really really good yeah dedicated amateurs they can still do in about five and a half hours that sort of thing well into their late 60s 70s because mm. they've conditioned their body to be that good yeah so what they would argue is i'm slow but I'm steady, I'm consistent, I know, I do my research, I know when the hills are coming, I know how to pace it. And, you know, it's just muscles and bones and ligaments and they work. And if they're working, I can just keep going. Mm. It's similar to jiu-jitsu, you can get old and I think with the defensive skills I've picked up recently, I can roll well into my 60s, I reckon, the same way that I roll now. Yeah, I'm not explosive or dynamic, I don't need to be. Um, or rather, there are moments where I could use it, but, you know, just using my defensive stuff and counterattacking. Mm. Um, isn't that a great thing that you can do a martial art at, oh, at quite full contact martial art? Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I think, I think um, hopefully we will see much more. I think, I think our generation 
yeah, prob- probably our generation hopefully will be the first generation where you, because you've been doing martial arts or doing whatever it is you do, cycling or whatever, and you had the the equipment and the the ability to be able to do it, you will get a lot more people in their 60s and 70s and 80s at a relatively high level because, you know, we, we had, for us, we kind of had a clear run all the way through from being kids until now. Nothing major really happened to prevent us from being fit or training or carrying on to pursue things. You know, we didn't have any wars that we had to go off and fight or anything terrible. And I think as well, you know, the the um the internet and the and the democratization of information and being able to um see that there are other people older than you a bit older than you doing the stuff you want to do and it is possible and it is perfectly achievable i think i think hopefully we'll we'll have a lot more people in our generation that will continue to train you know oh, yeah, 50s definitely. 60s 70s whereas definitely I think, you know, certainly when I was at school, like, again, this, I don't remember much from school, but I can remember once we had this guy who came to talk to us about World War II. His name was Mr. Kitchener and he was 72 years old. And everyone was like, oh my Dinosaur. God, yeah, Mr. Kitchener, this guy is 72. 72 now is like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of just 72. You, you yeah. wouldn't, you know, yeah. bat an eyelid. So, so actually, let me let me spin things around a little bit then seeing as as we we kind of swapped a little bit onto internet and and this side of things so you're you're very sort of active on social media in terms of your jiu-jitsu stuff but also your art and um i mean you you can tell me but i think i think you've knitted everything together very cohesively your art your martial art and your sort of social media um, exposure of what you do. So in terms of your art, because I, I assume, I mean, again, maybe you can tell me, but you, you, you were an artist from a young age and have, and have pursued it and developed it. <clears throat> yeah, so I think um, if you don't know that I, I, I run a brand called Meerkatsu, which is basically all my drawings and artworks, which I put onto jiu-jitsu apparel and uh, like rashgars and and t-shirts and geese and sell them so that's how i most people know my work um and they're all uh but when i started creating art yeah i was the kid in the class that could always draw um usually to comical effect because i was taking a piss out of someone you know you, you i have a really vivid yeah. picture of you sitting at the in yeah the during characters like, making other kids laugh enjoying yeah. the teacher you know naked or something in, in snm gear uh, maybe uh, maybe I shouldn't talk about that. Um, <laughs> um, but I never did art at school. I never uh, I never did art O level or A level or anything. I never progressed beyond just doing art. You know, as a fo- as as a normal subject. Like mm. When it came to choosing your academic subjects, um, <clears throat> I chose the path of sciences. Slight pressure from my parents to choose sciences. Um, a classic story from for immigrant parents is they you know they want their kids to be doctors and scientists and engineers and this and that so there was a very heavy pressure on me to pick the sciences and the more traditional subjects because art was seen as <clears throat> excuse me art was seen as um, a hobby or, a, or a not a serious mm. academic subject mm-hmm. which I will fight tooth and nail to to this day now and argue against but yeah back then I was a bit more impressionable I said all yeah. right mum whatever 
I'll do the sciences because I did enjoy sciences. I did enjoy physics, chemistry and biology. You know, I, I was good at it as well. Mm. And I was persuaded by the argument, you can always do arts in your spare time, but sciences, you know, you have to go to school and college and study for it. You can't just do that as a hobby. And that's a proper career. So that's what I did, basically. I, I, I followed the path of sciences uh, straight to university to do uh, botany, uh, crop science. Uh, and then when I graduated, I dumped all of that and joined uh, photographic uh, uh, agencies as um, one of the account executives there. And that's what I've done ever since uh, I, you know, I work in the photo industry. And I pretty much haven't drawn any, I didn't draw anything for decades. I just, you know, I gave up on art. Uh, it just wasn't really a thing for me. And my resurrection into art coincided with my t uptake of jiu-jitsu because here, here was a sport that was, let's face it, unregulated. There's a whole bunch of very, very random people. And there's such a freedom of spirit. Certainly in the older days, it was almost like, because I did traditional martial arts, you had to bow to sensei. You had to do it exactly by the book. Lots of straight lines doing kata and forms. And here was a martial art where think about it, my first experience was Alan Pozo wearing board shorts and a vest choking me out and and just you know and then the hands like a bump fist and thinking this is insane I've never come across anything in that culture in my life and this is me as an older man mm. so anyway as I got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu I started blogging about my experiences and I included some of my sketches and drawings and fun little things like you know Brazilian jiu-jitsu they're really obsessed with animals like you know there's a technique called the whatever anaconda this yeah, yeah, there's yeah. the bear you know people love wolves and tigers they they take the spirit animals and they're deadly serious about it yeah um i suppose a bit like say karate you're yeah, wearing your yeah, cobra yeah, kai yeah, t-shirt yeah, yeah. there yeah. um but in brazilian jiu-jitsu they take it it's so serious that isn't the story about helio named was it helio or his dad named the the various protagonists who were the like the forefathers um an animal character like Hickson was the bear. Oh, really? Um, so and so was the shark. Who was Holes? Holes was something or other. You know, everyone had an animal nickname. It right, was almost right. like a. Yeah. And the crossover between jujitsu and the and the MMA fight world. You know, again, animal nicknames and it was. Yeah. And I love animals, right? Yeah. I love drawing animals, so I started drawing more stuff. People started asking me, "Oh, can you do me a mascot and this and that?" I probably have to give credit to Dan Strauss because he was the first person to ask me to do a, a mascot, not for him, but for. Uh, Anthony Warby who was uh, doing MMA at the first did you meet Anthony he was one of the lads in the original Mill Hill no he wanted to do an MMA fight and because his surname was Warby his nickname would be the War B as right. in an angry you know yeah, little yeah, stinging yeah, yeah, creature yeah, yeah. so he wanted me to I drew that they did it on the t-shirt that was his fight walkout t-shirt and I put it on my blog which blog the internet exploded so yeah. people saying can you do me one can you do it? and he just grew up and then Tatami asked me to do a rash guard and it just grew from there exponentially if you like I'd say my heyday was probably around about 2011 2012 2013 I was <clears throat> and bear in mind I had a full-time job I was training jiu-jitsu I had young kids and all my spare time was doing drawings drawing mascots club mascots club logos rash guards t-shirts I pumped out probably a hundred in one year you know that's really? two a week and if you don't if you've ever done drawing just to do something as basic as they that cushion cover that's a couple of hours yeah. of work right yeah. a couple of hours i didn't didn't have uh and then someone said to me actually it was callum who, who ran jiu-jitsu star saying you know seymour you're doing all this work and you're getting paid for it yeah fair enough it's nice but you can earn so much more and you can be more in control of what you're doing if you just started with your own company selling your stuff 
I said, yeah, but I ain't got time to run a company. I've seen how my parents run their restaurant and it's just a headache. Business this, business that. I just want to draw. So he said, well, I'll run the company for you. Uh, you just give me the drawings. I'll sort out T-shirt, marketing, and we'll set up an st online store. We'll put adverts in Jiu-Jitsu style. It'll be sorted. So that's Callum. Thank you, Callum. He was the person who persuaded me to start Miyakatsu as a business as opposed to just, you know, Miyakatsu, just the pen name. Uh, I think that was 2011, something like that. And then it got so big, not to big up myself, but it got so much that he couldn't personally, it was just him and his mum, may remind, they had to run jiu-jitsu style as well. And he said, Seymour, we can't run Miyakatsu anymore. He's got t-shirts up to the ceiling and people, yeah, orders yeah. coming in. So I said, you know, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I don't know. I want to expand. I want to get bigger, but I don't want to take on the business. Mm. So I was having a moan with my friend, Matt Benyon, who runs Scramble. And he had a word with his business partner, Ben, Ben Tong. And they said, we'll take on the business. And I said, no, you don't have to. Don't do it as a favor. He goes, no, no, no. <laughs> Mikatsu is a nice little yeah, business. Yeah, yeah. We will take it on. We're doing it for money, Seymour. We're not doing it as a favor. Yeah, yeah. So I said, well, if you think it's profitable, yes, we think it's profitable. Okay, so they took it. So since about 2014, 15, Mirkatsu, when you buy a T-shirt, a gi, a rash guard, shorts or whatever from Mirkatsu, you're actually buying it from Scramble. Right. Because they, they use their factories, it's their offices, their warehouse, their, you know, back office, their logistics, their website, their everything, their IT, their photographers. They handle all the business side of the merchandise. All I do is the social media and the design work and man you couldn't have asked for a better partnership right it's scramble how cool are scramble yeah, they're yeah. the coolest brand they, they in jiu-jitsu yeah. i can't think of a cooler brand and if you say show your all i'll kill you because show your not a cool brand right yeah, I'm, I'm not into show your all <laughs> all the show your all haters sorry bear i love you man but you know they are show your all are a big corporation now but scramble seems to have still retained that cult Mm -hmm. feel mm -hmm. every release people get excited yeah. over yeah, yeah. um you don't know what shit they're going to come out with next you know yeah. it could be inspired by a collaboration it generally is japanese inspired but it could be an artist collab it's brilliant yeah i mean my favorite gi which i bought three of exactly. the black one yeah i you love that one didn't gosha have that one as well she bought one as yeah, well yeah yeah so you're having his and hers gi ed ed ingermells wore that jacket <laughs> once to nicks and i was like so, I mean, Ed's big, so he's it looks really good on him. He's sponsored, yeah, right? Yeah. And, he, and he wore that jacket and I was like, that's such a cool jacket. I wonder like, whether they still do it. And they still, because, you know, quite often they sell out, especially I need an A1L. Oh, Actually, right, yeah. let, let me, just in case the Scramble guys are listening or anyone else, <laughs> can you make more A1Ls? Because they just disappear. They go. Yeah, always. Yeah. But anyway, Ed had this jacket. I went and had a look on the website. They still had it. Yeah. So I ordered that key. And it came and I was like, this is so nice. I, I loved that gi. And, and I think that was, it must have been coming towards the end of the year because it was coming up towards the Black Friday thing. Yeah. And I said, you know what? If they've still got it on Black Friday, I'm just going to get another and two. And you picked it up. Yeah. So gosh, I got Lucky one you. and I got two. So you can't I've got, get that for love and money now. Yeah. One I've, yeah. One I've destroyed because yeah. that was my Friday night gi. I, I rolled in that yes. Friday night every Friday. So one I destroyed, one is open now, which I only wear for seminars, right? So right. when um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we had this recent seminar, I, I, that's my seminar gig because I don't want to, I don't want to break it. I know it's your favorite, and I've got it? one that's still in the plastic. Oh, I'm going to be one of those guys that's like, you know, oh yes, this is. I like the way I'll right? open this when I'm turn eighty. I, I like the way you, 
you treat your Porsches like well, throwaway items, you know, just drive it. Just, but your geese are like wrapped in. Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> museum pieces kept. But I mean, I, I think everybody likes, you know, like you like a nice T-shirt or a nice whatever it is. And I, I mean, actually, I think that's another thing just to quickly zip back into jujitsu that that makes it a little bit more customizable is that in most clubs people are wearing their own the stuff they like so yeah, rather than having yeah. a, a very rigid uniform like this what you got to wear you can wear this and that and rash guards and shorts and spats oh, yeah, and yeah. different the belts sub, that, that sort of creative and artistic subculture the fashion the apparel market <clears throat> i mean i'd still be doing jiu-jitsu if it didn't have that but that's giving it the extra it really knitted together a uh, sense of community yeah that you can walk down the street wearing a somewhat obscure t-shirt, which, you know, it doesn't, not all my t-shirts screen jujitsu. Some of them is just like a bonsai tree with the calligraphy for jujitsu on there. And some bloke will go, hey, you do jujitsu? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do. Aren't you, aren't you that Meikatsu guy? No, this, I'm not. Yeah, I'm this not, is no. my shirt. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. You are, aren't you? No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, I get, my wife hates it. She just rolls her eyes and goes, and, and you know, we get stops in the street not all the time, you know, I'm big, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exaggerating, but frequently enough yeah. for her to go, no, not, I'll roll her eyes at me. And then we'll just do the bro shake and talk about Jesus. Where do you train this and that? So have you, have you ever had any, like, uh, you know, going into a, a restaurant or something or get, get, get got upgraded to first class on the no, plane? No, it's by not the that. Honestly, it's not, that. Cabin crew, it's not no. that good. It's usually just, you're bumping into some, just a fist bump. some bro on the street and you do a fist bump. Um, laugh about jujitsu being jujitsu people in a random civilian environment, yeah, and then walk away. Yeah, the best oh, one I got was be um, nice, the I got two stories. The best uh, meeting people who know my gear stories. The one was I turned up at the O2 Arena. I think it was Seni. No, it can't be Seni. What was it? It was the last Seni. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you know Seni. Do you remember Seni? Yeah, the the yeah, expo. it's a martial art expo. It used to be massive, man. They used to have, it was used to be like three days. They had the jujitsu, MMA, everything. Every uh, manufacturer was there. Anyway, the last year they did it was in the O2 arena and it was just awful. There was no, there were no resellers there. There was mm. no MMA. There was no jujitsu. There was a jujitsu tournament, but it was tiny. Mm. It was disaster and they've never done one since. And I, so anyway, I packed up and went home and on the tube there, some Asian dude ran up to me, went, Mikatsu, Mikatsu. And I went, this is long off, this is way out of the vicinity yeah, of, so yeah. I didn't expect anyone to. And he goes, can I get a selfie? I said, yeah, sure. He put his arm around me, took a selfie. And, then, and usually I have a chat and go, where do you train? And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, who's your instructor? He just ran off. <laughs> so that was like my one um, dash and grab selfie with somebody who's probably quite happy to show on his did, Instagram. Did you ever face. get that, see that selfie no, posted? No, I wasn't tagged. I don't know who he is to this day. Went. And the other one was... I hey, if you're listening, if that's <laughs> you, jump onto uh, the Instagram yeah. and, and uh, I want to see that selfie. Katsu. I want to prove that photo. Yeah. Uh, and the other one was uh, um, at a seminar I went to and um, during the inter intermission, uh, we were just having a little cup of water or whatever and I spotted the guy wearing a honey badger gi, which uh, if you don't know, I, I designed honey badger for tatami fight wear. Uh, with my artwork on. So he was wearing a honey badger gi and I went up to him and I don't know who he is. 
And I said to him, nice gi, mate. You know, kind of like wink, wink. Yeah. And he said, yeah, no, oh, no, the artist is awesome. And I go, yeah, he is, isn't he? <laughs> I've heard of him. He goes, yeah, yeah, he's some bloke. I think he's called Mikatsu. And, and he carried on talking. I thought, oh, no, no, he doesn't actually know it's me. So he carried on talking. And his wife was going, because the gi was a present from his wife to right. him. And his wife trains as well. And right. she knew who I was. She was, rather than stop him, she just yeah, kept yeah. nudging him. He goes, yeah. What? What do you want? That's him. <laughs> she goes, What? That's that's Mikatsu. And I was standing go, Oh, yeah, it's, it's me. It's me. And he was going, You never seen someone's face fall like from embarrassment. I go, Oh, God. Oh, my. And it was the funniest thing ever. But it's so funny you can't laugh because you don't want to laugh because he's yeah. embarrassed. He's really yeah. embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the bad thing is, I had the rest of the seminar. To, he had to you know knowing that he'd made a, a tit of himself not really recognizing it but it's not really a tit is it you know you don't know you don't know yeah i've made my a tit of myself loads of times so, but um yeah i could make a career out of that anyway that, but that was funny and sweet and and you know it was a nice story to tell but the fact that he was raving about the artist and and the art on his gi but didn't know it was me mm-hmm. <laughs> even though i had full meerkatsu branding on my <laughs> yeah i mean uh you know, that's the way it goes. But yeah, so um, so thanks to Scramble, they they run the business side of things, and I talk to them on a weekly basis about things that are coming up. I'm I'm st- I'm basically piggybacking off their success because if you think about it, they they're a full time company. Mm. I'm still almost like a you know like a mum and pop store. You mm. know, I'm part timer. Mm-hmm. I can only I'm very adamant about the brand has to be all my own artwork. Mm-hmm. Although I've done the odd collaboration in the past and I might do some more in the future, but it is mostly about my expression mm. of the art. And I, I pop them onto rash guards and this and that. Um, but I also do still do freelance work. So I'll, I'll, if somebody comes in with a compelling offer to create a rash guard or a, a gi or something, mm. um, <laughs> and they're willing to pay me, of course, then I will do it. Uh, but it's just, you have to be very careful because it's, it can direct. I don't want to go back to the, the days in 2011 when I was just, you know, young kids, full-time job, training mm. jiu-jitsu, and I was just drawing and the quality went down and I was getting really stressed. I, I don't know if I, I wouldn't say it was a breakdown, but I was really stressed. Mm. And I, I realized I didn't want that to happen. And to answer your original question, so I didn't do art at school. I did sciences, but I'd always had that in my mind that I want to be a full-time artist or I want to be known for my art. I want to mm. be an illustrator, but not having a, progressed through the traditional art channels i felt that door was closed to me mm. but thanks to jiu-jitsu the door opened again yeah and i'm living a good life because that that you know at what, in my latter 40s i suddenly realized my dream of yeah. being an artist right so that's a nice fairy tale and it's a nice bookend to to i can say i at least achieve one of my yeah. things yeah very much so but then going back to my <clears throat> point the narrative that i was fed that art is not a proper subject I will defend vehemently that it is. So my daughter's going through that right now mm. where she's chosen to do art A-level and music A-level and there have been some rumours and suggestions in my family that, well, don't you think she should do like a proper subject like economics or business studies or, you know, that narrative where... It's strange even with the subject. amount of art you do that you still would get the pushback of, it's, mm, shouldn't she do something else? I have to laugh and say, <laughs> but you don't un- you don't live in the world of artists yeah the art industry is massive you've done film film is an art industry Mm -hmm. subject right music every book you read everything you listen to every tv program every netflix special everything 
artists are behind, creative yeah. people are behind yeah, yeah. it. It's a massive industry worldwide. And Britain actually is huge. Mm. Not just things like traditional BBC and Channel 4, but look at Sky Studios. They're building a massive production studios. They're making films and, you know, it's such a big part of our industry. You cannot say that the arts, doing the arts, mm. is a is a wasted degree or a wasted A-level. But I think I think that has changed and it, and it has become very much more available to uh, be able to, to have a good career and a good living because of the internet. Because prior to that it, it was yep. very much um gatekeepers you know you if you didn't get a publisher or you don't get true, an agent true, or true. you know you know what you would have no exposure aside from you know turning up to an expo or turning up to a festival or something and trying yeah. to show your work yeah. you know i think i think that, that that there has been um really a sort of 180 degree um flip where it used to be the case that, um, which is why our parents pushed us to do sciences and maths and whatever, where, you know, if you wanted to be useful in the the workforce, you needed some kind of trade, skill, accountancy, medicine, whatever. Whereas, I th- and I think we're right on the cusp of this now, all of those jobs are going to be replaced by computers, AI and robots. Um and the and the most difficult thing to replace is going to be art. And I and I and I, I I noticed actually a few weeks ago you posted these weird AI the uh, mid journey stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, which some which, of those good though. Some of them, some of the stuff you can get out of those things, yeah, was really was impressive. was incredible to to look at and see. I mean, effectively, that's maths, right? That's just the computer crunching numbers. This yeah, these just, numbers in just grabbing stuff off out. the internet, internet, and you know, but because keywording I mean, the, and, and but this. the computer doesn't sort of feel no, like oh well that yeah. should be a bit brighter because I'm yeah. feeling happy today. It's yeah. it just but it might do in ten years time. Who knows how the AI develops? It, it may, but certainly you know in in the meantime, it's going to obliterate the accountant, pharmacist, doctor, whatever. Because I, I remember a, a long time ago when I was doing a bit of video stuff, I was at a little. Um, some kind of little presentation and they had a few people speaking and pushing their little, I can be your life coach or this is my book or whatever. But there was one guy and he, and he said, um, this is, this is going back a good, probably 15 years, 10, 15 years. He said, um, if you, if you think about medicine, if you think about a doctor, really all a doctor is, is a lookup table. (laughs) You go in and you say, these are my symptoms. And then the doctor goes on his mental model. Well, my doctor actually looks it up on the internet, but you know. Well, exactly, but you know, he, he literally goes on on his on his either online or yeah. his own He's or a a combination. Yeah, and he yeah. just says, "Okay, these are the symptoms, these are the tests we should run." Yeah. Run the tests, these are the results we get. This is what we prescribe. The, the computer yeah, your 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 yeah. your, yeah. your Apple Watch can do that. Yeah, easily. True. No problem. Yeah. But he said the person who cannot be replaced yet, I mean, this is 15 years ago, the person who cannot be replaced is the nurse. Right. Who, when you go in, holds your hand and says, don't worry, we see people with this all the time. Yeah. We, we can fix it. It's, it is uncomfortable, but, you know, you'll be all right, whatever. Do you want a glass of water? This, this is the thing that's very hard to replace. And so I think, you know, in terms of pursuing a career, 
art and music and this this kind of thing, I, I think, are going to be actually the safe, in inverted commas, right. jobs going forwards completely 180 degrees from from how it used to be. I think I think that there is going to be that also, inversion. It's also, it's like if you only do a subject in school with the aim because it's going to get you a job, I think that's missing out on a whole lot of potential that you have as a human yeah, being, right? Yeah, yeah. In contribution to culture and making the most of your potential, right? If you were at school, right, and you were a gifted athlete, where you thought, well, this athlete is not going to turn up to anything, I'll just knuckle down to my A-levels, which is fair enough, people mm, do that, mm, mm. and you didn't put 100% into your athletics, the, you know, the Olympics in eight years' time would have missed out on a potential long jumper or, or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So when I speak to my kids... Um, you know, I tell them that you, you, you are put on this earth with specific talents mm. and it's up to you to make the most of them. Now, I say to my daughter, you're clearly gifted in art and music mm. and I'll do everything I can to make sure you're using that to your potential if you want to. Yeah. I'm not pushing you into anything. So if you want to go to this concert, if you want to pick up this instrument, if you want to go to that teacher, I will pay for it and do it. Mm. I'll do everything I can to encourage you. Mm, mm. Nothing should stand in your way because it's her passion. Yeah. And if she decides that whatever 20 to give it up and become an accountant, nothing wrong with being accountant, then so be it. But I've done everything I can to make sure she's rewarded with her potential. Yeah. If I said to her, if she said, look, dad, I want to do A-level a music. And I said, no, that's not a proper subject. Mm. I would have cut that off yes. yeah. immediately. And then who knows where she'll be in 10 years time 20 years time that she could she was not allowed to reach her potential yeah i mean it's it is that um authenticity being able to be your authentic self and do the yeah. things that that actually drive you i mean i was i was listening to something just today um on the rich roll podcast um and i forget the guy's name but he, he basically he was talking about chronic disease as a um a symptom or a, or a caused by inauthenticity in your life. So because you're suppressing things and not dealing oh, right. with things, it comes out in your body through MS, arthritis, all, all kinds of inflammatory. Almost like um, an internal stressor, yeah. but like a long-term chronic stressor. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. like um, like a bad uh, relationship you had in your twenties. Ex exactly. Or or some sort of fear or phobia. Yeah, so he, yeah. he actually referenced a few people, a few cases um, where um, people were given terminal diagnoses and then because they were given terminal diagnoses, they decided, well, I don't need to pretend to be who I was pretending to right. be anymore because I've only got six months left to live. And then 20 years later, they're perfectly fine yeah, because yeah. everything just disappeared and went into remission because the body was like, oh, thank God for that. Like yeah. I can be, you know, I wanted to be a milkman or whatever, you know, I always wanted to drive a milk float and you start driving the milk float and then you, everything <laughs> sort of, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's fantastic. You know, that you, that you through your own journey. Somehow I, I suppose the argument that you know, could be said is, well, you got to do art in the end anyway. So maybe that those early days where you chose sciences, was not a bad thing and I guess you could argue it's not a bad thing but I've always had that regret in my life that I didn't fulfill my potential mm. as a young 16 year old choosing a, a career in art uh, which I am expressing now but I could be so much better than I you know I, I've basically missed out on probably two three decades of refining my inner artist mm. I'm still drawing like I am when I'm 15 I, I, 
up, you know, I look back at drawings when I was little, a small, you know, a teenager, and it's the same sort of thing, same sort of style. I haven't progressed as an artist, but that's I'm a bit better now, obviously. <laughs> you know, that's nice though because I, you know, to me, just looking at it as a as a consumer of your art. Yeah, yeah, I noticed last night you both wore unicorn rash guards. I yeah, don't know if that was intentional. As Gosha said, matchy, matchy. <laughs> but, um, but it, but it does. It, your your art does have that childlike, vibrant, fun, really excited about this yeah, feel to it. Yeah, which, you're right, yeah. you know, in in on the one hand, you know, I, I know what you're saying that you that you know you would mature as an artist and you develop different skills and different techniques and, and, and whatever but you know maybe you lose the the fun aspect of it which again to to, to knit it back into jujitsu which i think probably you 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 have the similar sort of um feeling about it as me rolling around on the floor is what little kids do yeah if you just right. get two little kids five years old you put them in a room you close the door, you tell them, look, we're not coming, no one's coming in for half an hour, look through the keyhole, they're going to be wrestling. Give them 60 seconds, yeah, they're going to be wrestling. Yeah, you're right. It's a very primeval thing, isn't it? Yeah, and so, you know, having having that, still that really, you know, your your work, everything is still really playful. It's It's got such a, you know, it doesn't take itself too seriously, but at the same time, it's 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 incredibly sort of, insightful and honest you know like kids are honest when they say i love this like they love it yeah they yeah, don't yeah. say it because oh i know you you spent ages making this birthday cake but they jump up and down they're so excited yeah yeah and i think i think your work has has got that but what actually what one thing i wanted to ask you about sure something you said to me um when we did the 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 ape nfts right you said um, that you that you would consider later on, further down the line, doing something with your geishas, but not at that point because they're very special. Or they yeah. have a, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So the the one of my signature uh, series is um, I draw these Japanese tr ladies in traditional costumes using jujitsu techniques on uh, Japanese demons, which are called oni, oni. Uh, and I first did that in 2011, I think, for as a charity T-shirt for Tap Cancer Out. They just asked me, can you design a T-shirt? It's going to be used, um, which they're still selling now, 10 years later. And it's still their top selling T-shirt, raising good you know, money for their good causes, which I'm very proud of. So I, I did a, um, um, a Japanese girl doing uh, in a kimono using the uh Omoplata on a, on a demon and I didn't really think anything of it but he kept coming back to me Seymour this is sold so well you know you should do more and, you know, I'm not asking for more t-shirts but you should just keep doing it so I did another one I put it on a rash guard and that sold really that's just sold out within you know weeks a couple of weeks and I thought oh my god I'm really onto things so I just every year I just kept doing sometimes I do two a year they're really hard to draw because I don't know if you know I can't draw people I couldn't draw people at the beginning of sort of my second phase of being a, an illustrator I've never really studied human form or anatomy. I just couldn't draw people. I can draw animals and cartoon anything, but I could never draw people. So um, just through practice by hook or by crook, I did get a few tutorials um, 
books and things to learn how to draw human anatomy. And also through jujitsu, you learn anatomy through jujitsu, just <laughs> for the very fact that you, somebody choking your head off, mm. you have to know where the arm is, where mm. the shoulder is, where the wrist is, and where their, where their center of gravity is in order to defend and also to how to attack. So you, you get a real sense of human anatomy. There's no um, better sense of it than somebody trying to choke you out or break your arm. Uh, and I've managed to apply that in my drawings and each drawing of a human I did, it's just practice in it. It's like jujitsu, you just get better and better. So me, my versions of the Geisha series now, I, I think are much better than the early days because they were a bit clunky and a bit wooden. Mm. Whereas now I think they have a bit more form and a bit more flow. A little bit better as an artist. Um, but that just ca carried on and on. But I also realized that they're they're so hard to draw and they're unique to me because I've seen people draw ge Geishas before um, and I think one other, Chris Burns did one with, with, with a geisha fighting, uh, no, it wasn't a geisha, it was a man, man in traditional Japanese costume fight, fighting a devil, but I've not seen anyone draw an authentic geisha versus a demon in the same way. So I, I can, I like to think that I'm probably the only one doing it, but even then it doesn't matter if I'm not the only one I'm doing it, although all recognizably my style. Mm. And um, it takes so long and each piece I release, for me, it's a, it's a special occasion launching it. It's my show your all moment, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a, tied to that, uh, I've released limited edition prints, which I've sold for charity. So uh, I'll pr print 10, sell them for 100 quid each. You know, it's a thousand pounds. And I give it to whatever charity um, John is organizing for his Bristol Grapathon. And so I've been doing that or phone cases or whatever the method is to, to do a, uh, some sort of reach out to people who pay money. I think the best one I did were my canvas shoes. I bought some Vans. Oh, yeah, I remember you doing that. And that was during lockdown. Yeah. And if you don't remember people, lockdown was boring as hell, right? You're stuck in a house with your family. I had to do homeschooling with my kids because my wife was actually still working, but she was Zoom calling everyone. So she couldn't homeschool the kids. So I had to homeschool the kids. Nothing breaks your mental spirit than trying to teach your kids school curriculum shit. So in the afternoons were free for me and I couldn't do jujitsu. You can't really, you couldn't go out at the time. I didn't have my bike back then, but I did order some Vans trainers and some fabric paints and I just painted on those and they were, they were beautiful. So I managed to draw without my glasses, my reading. I was like doing that. It took me hours and hours, but I did them. They were successful. Anyway, I sold those for charity. So they made a few hundred quid. Um, so those, everything those I've went done, to Brazil, right? Did they go to Brazil? Yeah, some, I think a Brazilian bought them. Yeah. The irony is in Brazil, unfortunately, they can't buy my Meikatsu stuff because Scramble doesn't want to ship to Brazil because right. every every shipment they sent gets nicked. Right, right, right. And whatever courier they use, it gets nicked. So probably one out of seven or eight recipients get their parcels. So they just said, we just can't sell to Brazil. It will make too much of a loss. Mm. The workaround is that they ship them to a friend in America and then America couriers have a bit more success delivering right. to Brazil. But right, right. international, whoever works there, they're going, oh, from Britain, I'll have that. Lovely. That's, that's just a random aside. But anyway, yeah. um, for my personal things, I can send to Brazil and I track it because I'm not yeah. losing those. I'm not paying those shoes again. Yeah. So it's special in that they take me a long time to do. It's like a once a year special release when I release a new design. Uh, when I do charity work, it's usually a, a limited edition print or something that's a one-off. Mm. Uh, so I'm very careful and precious about what I do with them in terms of commercializing them uh, to wide. So doing them as NFTs, I, I was hesitant about knowing full well that I think they would sell very well, but I don't want very nice digital versions of my geisha yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, because I've been ripped off so many times by cowboys and counterfeiters mm. from uh, Pakistan, um, just printing 
scanning my work in, putting it on their rash guards, and then selling it to the black market. Mm. I've had I've had fans contact me saying, "Seymour, is this one of yours? Because it looks a bit dodgy." But I bought it off in a market stall in so and so in 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 Greece or whatever. I said, "Yeah, it's my drawing, but you can tell from the way it's scanned and yeah. some of the bits they've had to draw in themselves." Right. <laughs> All the colours have been knocked back. Yeah, yeah. I've got, man, I've got a whole folder full on my computer of all the counterfeits I've copied. Wow. I think next to Shoyrol, I'm probably the most counterfeited person in jiu-jitsu. You should, that's a, that's one for your blog post, just to run just, through his, oh, uh, all I, my counterfeits. It, it, it winds uh, me up so much, I can't think about it because it, you know, you talk about stresses. Yeah, yeah that's one I'm of gonna, them. That's probably why I have chronic conditions. <laughs> I'm fit, yeah. <laughs> Bloody counterfeits. Like, I had took some good advice and say, Seymour, there's probably nothing you can do about it. Mm. So don't let it upset yeah. you. Just if you see it, laugh, going bastards. Yeah. Put it to one side. Just keep doing your thing. Yeah. And I think that's good advice. Yeah. Because what they can't do, what AI can't do, is this mm. and come up with the next thing yes. that I've got right, yes. the next original piece. Um, yeah. So, so 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 actually, that's that 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 runs me on to the couple of other things that I wanted to ask you about. So, so one is actually like, what's your current process at the moment, technically in terms of what you had, what kind of equipment are you using to work and what's your process in terms Ooh, we're of We're talking gadgets. And, I like gadgets. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you know, but I am colorblind. So that's another factor that I, that hampers me in my artistic career. So pre computers, when we would use proper paints, I was very hesitant about using inks, paints, acrylics, that's it. So all my drawings would have been pen and ink. So I'm good at pen and ink, black and white, black on white, right? Mm. So uh, then when I got my, when I got the PC and I started getting Photoshop illustrates on that, you can also get, they basically tell you the colors. You just use the eyedropper tool and it right. says light yellow ochre or yeah. dark. So, yeah. you know, I ain't thick. I know yeah. brown is brown, right? Yeah. I know trees have brown trunks and leaves are green. So, um, so my early drawings, you would notice the color palette was really naive and, and crude, if you like, because I was literally using an eyedropper going, well, I think that's a brown. And, and, and then copying and pasting the color onto my works, right? But since then, I've educated myself in color theory and uh, color dynamics and how color actually works from a scientific point of view. So I'm now able to apply color in a more, shall we say, artistic manner while still not being able to see it properly. I also road test them with um, my business partners and also my family going, does this color combination look good? Mm. So every release I do is carefully checked and double checked, but I have still make some errors. Like for example, I did one of my early designs and I used the eyedropper and everything. I don't know why it went wrong. <laughs> Well, I don't know if you remember my rooster spats, the very yeah, first yeah, rooster yeah. spats, they were red yeah. and they had a rooster and he was breathing fire, Yeah. right? So what color is fire? Reddish. Reddish, orange, yellow, yeah, yeah, you know, the warm yeah, tones. Yeah. I picked the wrong color and I did them green, right? And I couldn't tell the fucking difference. The fire. Yeah, fire. I oh, drew wow. green fire. So is it red, red, green you, you struggle yes. with? But, you know, to explain it in a, to a person who isn't colorblind is quite hard. Mm. But anyway... Just trust me, when it was printed <laughs> and my business partner said, did you want to make the flames green? I went, what? No, it's orange. It looks orange to me. He goes, Seymour, it's green. I went, for fuck's sake. But luckily it was a one-off sample. Right. So I went back to, literally went back to the drawing board and I used my eyedropper tool. So it definitely said orange red on there rather than, sometimes they have ambiguous words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, what's the word they use that's really ambiguous? Um, anyway, I can't remember. Uh, uh, and then 
uh, I redid it and they printed it. Luckily, that was yeah. fine. So yeah. it had orangey red flyer. <laughs> so it's who's but got then the, another who's friend got the said green to me, one? Another friend said to me, he said, it probably doesn't matter that it was green because you're creating weird shit. That they're fantasy illustrations. I was say, the green ones are probably like if a it was one a of green, one, Yeah, right? if it was a green fire, no one would really question it. Um, but well, you have to get it right when it comes to like human skin tone mm-hmm. and um, certain things like the color belts and ranks yeah. rash guards. You've got to get them right. Yeah. So everything's double checked, and I, I, as I say, I'm more educated in color theory, and and um, you get these sort of big circles with gamut patterns uh-huh, on there uh-huh. and you can you got triads and tetrads and, and complementary colors and contrasting colors so so i i think the color choices i now it takes me longer to get to the end of because i watch my daughter she just literally just dips in the paint paint mm. i said how do you know what colors goes i don't know i just know mm. whereas i don't know so yeah. i have to use a more a uh, well-worn yes process yeah. to do that yeah um and it, so it takes me twice as long to color something but that being said, I'm confident of it looking good because yeah. the black and white stuff is there. Yeah. Black and white drawings are the fundamentals like in jiu-jitsu. Without yeah. knowing the fundamentals of bridging and shrimping, your jiu-jitsu will be shit when it comes to escaping. Yeah. And so black and white drawing is the bridging and shrimping of, of creating art. But you, you, you're immediately doing it digitally or you yeah, pen I and just, paper? Everything's on the iPad. Before I used to draw in pencil, scan it in, and then trace over it digitally. Yeah. But now I just draw on the iPad with yeah. the pencil tool, uh, transfer that to the desktop where I'll turn it into a vector. So I'll draw the vector lines or I'll live trace it. Then we start to play with color and shading and highlights and build up layers and layers and layers and layers. Um, sometimes I'll paint using Photoshop and a couple of other painter programs, but most of my work is vector, mm-hmm. which is a very handy format because vectors are is, is basically is a mathematical you're not creating pictures, you're creating a mathematical uh, formula. Yeah. So when it prints, it prints the formula out onto Rashgard, yeah. which is a very weird way of explaining it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can it can get as big and small as it wants. Exactly, right? you get an infinitely scalable object because yeah. it, it looks at each point you drew as a mathematical point rather yeah. than what well, it's kind of about 300 yeah. pixels big and 300 pixels wide. And so so let's let's say you're doing a Rashgard. Yeah. From scratch, someone says, I would like a snake and a rabbit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Done that, yeah. How, <laughs> how, okay, so the snake and the rabbit. How, yeah. how, how long did that take you? How long on average from, from if I ask you for right. something, yeah. do, you, do you find sometimes there's a week where you're trying to find something in your head or would you start working straight away and just Well, that's a good question. So I do pen? when I do work for... Um, freelance com- like other companies like Tatami or whatever I'll charge by the hour uh, and I used to um, only charge when I started to do the you know with the stage when I do the vectorizing because mm-hmm. that's very intent- labor intensive mm-hmm. but now I charge from the moment I put my pen onto the digital tablet because yeah. what you're paying me for are my ideas yeah. and my ability even if it's a shitty thumbnail sketch that's something you couldn't do yeah. right so you're employing me to come up with the idea. So mm. I'm charging the moment I put pen. So I spend no more than one hour to produce like five or six thumbnail sketches. And they really are literally like a kid took a crayon and going, here's a head, here's an arm, here's a sword, you know, here's a chimera. And he's doing that on, on the on the snake or whatever. Yeah. And here's five versions of it. Pick one you like. So they go, well, I like B. Okay. And then I do a proper pencil sketch and I refine that probably three or four times. And I can probably do three or four refined pencil sketches in about 
an hour and a half, two hours. Right. So already we're into three hours, right? And then I will take that and draw what I call the line art. So it's a very, it's the same process like getting a tattoo. Have you got any tattoos? No. But you know how tattoos work, yes, right? Yeah. So the tattooist will draw out the sketch on pencil on on paper and show you is this what you want. Yeah, yeah. Then they'll do the the blue mark or the temporary yeah, pencil marks yeah, on your yeah. skin, and then trace over it. So yeah. for me, the, the 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 refined pencil line that's the 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 temporary mark. Yeah. And then the inking up is when I use what the a digital brush to ink on. And these are you can delete and stuff, but ultimately these are that's what you see on the final rash guard. Yeah. Okay. And then you take that. And we put that into Illustrator or Photoshop and then we start the colouring process. And all that is very time consuming. So a good rash guard, I think, with with a front piece of art and something different on the back with with decorations on the sleeves. And don't mm -hmm. forget, there's all sorts of little decorations. Like sometimes they have little labels like this. And yeah, all. yeah, yeah. All that is probably about 25 hours right. work. Twenty Between 20 hours and 25 hours work. Any more than that, and I charge 50 quid an hour. So... If you if I'm asking for like a thousand quid from a from a client who's making whatever mm. you know two hundred rash guards, mm -hmm. there's not much profit in it from them. So I have to be careful about yeah you know how much premium I charge. But then again, I I believe in my the quality of my work mm -hmm. and my my the impact it has. So I feel in my right that I can charge yeah. that, and that's nothing compared to actual commercial artists and illustrators in the real world who probably get 30, 40 grand a job mm. for creating something for the front cover of a book or something. You know, that's how they earn their living. And so with the the, the geishas would be triple that amount of See, time. See, the geishas I don't do it for anyone. I do it for myself and I don't set a time limit when I do it for myself. So but I but will spend weeks on We would just yeah. go back to it and go back to it. Just keep go back going to back to it. Back to yeah. it. At the moment, I'm working on one. It's not a geisha, it's a samurai. Actually, it's sort of a geisha. She's a female samurai. That is taking me months. Right. I just, every, once a week, I'll power up the computer. Going, oh God, this is going to take me ages. And I'm drawing every single detail on a samurai costume. Do you know how samurai costumes are made? Yeah, with well, the little scales. The, and yeah, the scales and the, there's like millions of them. And yeah. I'm hand drawing every single one. And each one is slightly different because the angle changes as, as the hand. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and you know, even a katana, even the the handle of a katana, it's all threaded and mm. it's shark skin and there's embroidery and there's I'm drawing all of that. That's oh, just amazing. the line art and that's taken that's taken me months already. And then I've got to colour it. <laughs> it's gonna take me so no, no long. green fire on this one. But yeah, that's that's the process. So with the NFTs we did, I probably spent probably a good maybe not as much as twenty hours on one drawing, but close to it. Mm. But the good thing is I've got the black and white. Yeah. So the NFTs I was I did how many, what, three versions each one? Yeah. Six versions. So it was just a matter of an hour spent playing with the colours. Yeah. And with people who do NFTs, generative art NFTs, they do a base concept and they they do some sort of algorithm where they throw like ten thousand different colour combinations, yeah. don't they? So yeah. you get ten thousand versions. In a way what I'm doing is the same as that but manually. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you can see the difference. I mean, yours looked like they were. Yeah, I wanted. I thought. I, I mean, I did. Thanks to you, I, I, I caught <laughs> in the rabbit hole of NFTs and, and crypto, and I, I learned enough that I needed to know mm. to for the art side of it. And I realised that there's two ways you can do it. You can be a robot churning out thousands, yeah. but to me, that that doesn't have any value. I want because ultimately, I'm going to appeal to my fans, and they mm. want to buy a piece of art that they own. Yeah, that's theirs that won't be replicated by anyone else or you know, in theory it's the, legally theirs 
And I thought, you know, let's make sure each one is unique. Mm. And the only way I can do is hand draw it, each, each one yeah. differently. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm glad I did it, really. It's a shame the crypto's gone down a bit because I didn't crash my... <laughs> I didn't crash my souls. So they were worth, I don't know how many, a couple of thousand. It's gone down to about 300 quid. I, just, I think it will come again. But I'm just keeping it in there. You it's know, a I, cycle. To me, it's, it was a fun extra project. Yeah. And uh, when when crypto goes up again, because it will. Yeah. People, I'm, I'm, it kind of annoys me because you get the comments, don't you? When people talk about like the mainstream newspapers like, guardian and that lot they go oh crypto markets crash this person lost his life savings and all the laughing emojis after is going well fucking idiots i'm sorry but if you put your money in the currencies of now look how much the pound is worth right now it's worth shit yeah i looked in 1980 it was one pound to one dollar and ever since then it's been about 1.5 dollars to a pound and then overnight it's crashed. Right now it's about one dollar. It hasn't been this low since 1985. Man, the financial markets is is just as much a mugs game as crypto, but the timeline is different. Yes, exactly. They're, they're all cycles. I mean, everything everything goes in a cyclical fashion. Um, so so just just rounding out a little bit, you, you're you've got a website which is Mikatsu. <laughs> Yeah, you'll find me on, if you just go to meerkatsu.com, that's basically the hub where I sell my merch. Um, and uh, But it also links to my blog. I'm resurrecting my blog. So I do reviews and articles and interviews on there on my blog site. You can also have access. You also link to my Instagram and Facebook where I'm most active. I sometimes write on Twitter. I don't really get Twitter. People love Twitter, don't they? It's very, it's very evergreen. They really have I, arguments and all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, I, I like Twitter for consuming. I mean, I think, I think a, a, a good way to understand it is, is a curated news feed. Right. So you can follow the, the people, the topics, the whatever that you're right. interested in and get a is daily, why, hourly... Is that why, like, for politicians, it's yeah, quite a good politics one. for crypto as well. Crypto yeah. Twitter is, is right. the thing. Whereas I think... I guess for for more Instagram's uh, more for, entertainment, isn't it? It's not, and really. also for more artistic. If you're yeah. into sort of art, video, music, performance, you know, Instagram's a very visual um, feed. Yeah. Whereas Twitter yeah. is just is just raw information. Right. Okay. We've just seen this. Here's a photo of that. Oh, look at the price of I this. I think I am more inclined to the visual. Yeah. Side I, of think, I think. I think that. I think why they, TikTok is so so addictive because yeah. it's just non-stop, relentless videos. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I don't go on there. You, you won't have a life. Yeah, no. So I watch my kids doing it, and then I go, "What is this rubbish?" And five hours later, I go, <laughs> "That man. This was <laughs> look, he did the backflip off yeah. a building. It was amazing." Yeah, no, thankfully I haven't been sucked into that, don't, don't into that one into yet. Yeah, so I'm on, I'm on social media a, a fair bit. Uh, yeah, I, I, I argue that that is pretty much the only way you can market yourself these days. Mm. Um, if you're, you know, I'm an online brand, so that's, that's what I am. Uh, whether it's my freelance stuff or just me goofing around, showing pictures of my jiu-jitsu or my proper stuff, my merch stuff. Um, and that's how I think most people connect these days. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is sad, I suppose, but also, you know, there's not much. What I now value is doing real world things more. Like just going for a cycle around the countryside, hooking up with you guys for actual physical contact jujitsu. Yeah. Because especially during lockdown, I I realized after a while that it's such a, it can be a very negative uh, mental, mentally, it can be very negative to be online too much. Oh, for sure. And I am online a lot, and I'm very aware of that. 
So I, I appreciate more doing the real world stuff. Mm. And I think jujitsu being such a big part of my life has kept me sane. Yeah. It's probably kept you sane. It's kept yeah, a lot, sane. a lot of people have, have said the same thing. And we, I mean, we've spoken about this before and I've probably spoken about this even on the podcast already, but I think a lot of people um, don't have a lot of physical contact in their life. So either you don't have a partner, you don't have kids, you don't have a pet. Yeah, through no fault of their own. I yeah. Mean, yeah, you, yeah. You, you work um, remotely or there's one person in the office or whatever yeah. and you don't have a lot of physical contact. So, you know, literally having somebody that you can roll around on the floor with is a, is a really healthy it's amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's prim- it, it fires up a primitive set of neurons and hormones and serotonins and whatever in your body that few things can do. Yeah, yeah. It's that interact. You can go for a run and still get the same endorphin rush, but going for a five-minute roll with your buddy yeah. and him trying to, you know, strangle your head off while you're trying to do it to them is this the best shit ever. It's it just, is. It's, it's like no other drug. It's amazing. Yeah. Even now, what some almost next year will be my twentieth anniversary of first doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and I, I still get a buzz from it now. Isn't that you can't really say the same about a lot of things? Yes, yeah, it, well, exactly what we were saying just before we started recording. That, yeah. that at this age that I am now, I don't have a lot of novel things in my life. Yeah. So when I when I have an ex, whatever experience it is, food or whatever, that that I haven't had before. I always think, oh, fantastic! That's something new this yeah, week, yeah, and yeah. and jujitsu quite often is the thing because I'll yeah. I'll either catch something new, or I will have been no watching two roles something. are the same. No yeah. two roles are the same. We've been training together for two years now. Yeah. Same people, same yeah. week, yeah. same. And okay, we might even do the same techniques week on, but none, no, no two techniques are have ended up the same in the same nuances of it. So you're being stimulated so much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So, okay, guys, um, mirkatsu.com and mirkatsu on Instagram. And uh, you can follow us. Uh, buy my white, shit. Buy, buy his <laughs> shit, especially uh, you're going to have a Black Friday something. I guess we, yeah, I guess we ought to, yeah. I've just done a sale, but uh, we might do it. Christmas next, yeah. guys. Christmas is coming up. Yeah, some so cool things coming up in the, there's some really, there's a really cool pair of shorts and rash guards coming in the store in the next couple of weeks. So look out for that. Yeah, look out and you, that, that you'll announce that drop on Insta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. so follow follow Mikatsu on Instagram. Follow us, White Basement Pod, on Instagram. And uh, as I always say, if you enjoyed the podcast, share it with two friends. And if you didn't enjoy it, share it with six friends. <laughs> and we'll catch you next time. 